today we're going to talk about, I'm just going to say it right up front, we're talking about a lukewarm church, a lukewarm church. I got to thinking about this, and I don't remember ever a time when Marcy would say on a cold day, let's go get ourselves a lukewarm cup of coffee, or on a very hot day in the summer saying, let's get ourselves a very tepid glass of iced tea. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Why? Because it's not something that's particularly appealing. And when you begin to think about what lukewarm is, and then you realize that there was a church, there was a church that was categorized as being lukewarm, man, that is startling to me. But of each of the six churches that we have discussed so far, each of these churches had a letter from Jesus. And these letters from Jesus have said some really great things. They've challenged the churches. In fact, almost without fail, you'll hear something along these lines that Jesus will say to that church, I know your deeds. And you know, that's, on the one hand, that's really encouraging. On the other hand, there's a little bit of challenge connected to this idea that Jesus knows what's going on. Now, frankly, I'm glad that he knows what's going on in my life. I want him to. But you know, if I'm kind of out of step, and I, and I may not want to face the fact that I'm out of step, to know that Jesus still knows what I'm doing can have a bit of a humbling, a humbling uh, response to me in my life. So we're going to talk about church in Laodicea this morning. And the words that you're going to hear a lot today are the words lukewarm. And I heard the words tepid. And if you are lukewarm or tepid, it means it's to be characterized by a lack of force or enthusiasm. It is to be unenthusiastic or, here's a word, apathetic, lukewarm. Looking at Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse number 14, the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Say I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray in these moments that we have together, speak to us. Lord, I, I, all of us have physical ears, but I pray that we would, ear, we would hear with the ears and see with the eyes of our heart today what you would say to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning as I was continuing my kind of final preparation and just letting some time of prayer and some thought, I was, I was very challenged once again with this passage of Scripture. I have to be honest with you. This has been a really hard week in preparation. Probably one of the hardest weeks that I've had in a long time as I've considered this passage of Scripture. Because it, there's no way around saying this is a happy text. It is a challenging one. It is a sobering one. And I got to thinking, I said, God, what, what are you saying to me? Because here, here's the reality of it. This is a message to a church 1,900 years ago. And we look at this and we say, okay, that's, that's for them. And, and truly it was. It was to them. And the letter was written to them and it was for them. It was very, it was very direct to them. But the reality is, just as, our, just as our series title says, seven churches then and now, this is a message for us. It is a message for us collectively, but it's also a message for us individually. And here's what struck me so strongly this morning is that in each of these seven letters to these churches, it begins in, a, in an exactly the same way, to the, to the angel of the church. Now, the angel can be two things. One, it can be an angel. There you go, duh. It can also be, and many believe this to be true, that it's the, addressed to the pastor of the church. Can I just tell you, that sobers me. So immediately the Holy Spirit is saying to my life, Gary, how are you doing? How are you doing? Is is hot, cold, or lukewarm? How are you doing? And so I want you to know, I want you to journey with me over these next two, three, four hours that we're together. I'm teasing, of course. I want, you to journey, I want you to journey with me these next few moments with this on your heart. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit would say to the church. If you have ears to hear what the Spirit would say, open those ears and let God speak to your life. Don't push, don't push the Holy Spirit aside today. Don't say, this isn't for me. Because I'm on fire for God right now. I, I, I'm good. And I can tell you something. We have all been in that place where we're saying, you know, so I'm doing good. In fact, I'm doing better than I've ever done. And I, I want to tell you, that's exactly what I prayed yesterday. I was going, God, this is really good. I feel like I'm doing better than I've ever done. And then the Lord says, what about this? Okay. I'm not suggesting there's the lukewarm. I'm just saying... I, like all of us, I want to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to me. I don't want to dismiss God's Word to my life. I don't want you to either. Because in responding to the Word of God, that's where life is. So We're going to talk about this for a while this morning. Let's look at a map of the seven churches. And Laodicea is number seven, as you might imagine. It's about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. Ephesus was on the seaport. It was, the real, it was kind of the big city in the area. It was kind of the big dog in the hunt, as it were. And then the trade route for Asia went up through these seven churches. And so now 
You're about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, about 40 miles south, southeast or so of Philadelphia, the church we talked about last week. Interesting about Laodicea. There was a unique relationship between three churches in Asia. Two of them, one of them you may not be familiar with, another one you might be, would be the church at Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians. But the three churches of Colossae, Herapolis, and Laodicea had a very special relationship. And you can read a little bit about that in Colossians chapter 4.16. Paul references, ready for this, when you're done reading the letter of this letter, send this on to Laodicea and make sure that you read the letter from Laodicea here at Colossae. So there's a lost letter. But there was, this, was a, this was a special place in, in Paul's life, and there was a relationship between these three churches. A man by the name of Epaphras most likely was, uh, he, had, he, was a leadership, he was in leadership over this church or in some semblance of leadership in this church. But the uniqueness of this, of Laodicea, it's set in a beautiful valley called the Lycus Valley. It was a fertile region. It was a very wealthy banking center. So it was, very, it was a very wealthy city. And as it so happens, it was, kind of, it was a wealthy church. It was a church of prominence. It was, it was kind of the in thing to be a part of the church at Laodicea. That was, a, that was a good thing. So they had a good reputation from all that can be discerned. It doesn't mean that they were, you know, you know in favor of, of Rome was in favor of what they were doing because there was a definite conflict between the worship of Christ in Rome. We understand that. But there was still a pretty good reputation here. Interestingly, in 60, in AD 60 or so, 80, 60, there was an earthquake that destroyed the area. And Laodicea was offered help from the imperial capital. We'll help you rebuild. Here's, here's, we'll help you do this. And Laodicea said, no, thank you. We got this. We'll take care of it ourselves. They're very self-sufficient. They were what? They were proud that they could do this on their own. They were also known for this wonderfully fine black wool. It was, kind of, it was something very, very much desired throughout the region. It was used for capes and carpeting. It was something very, very special. Something else, there was a, a medical school in Laodicea. And the god Asclepius, the serpent god of medicine, was one of the deities uh, held in high regard in Laodicea. But in this medical community, they had developed what was called a Phrygian ointment. And it was a powder made into a salve that they believed could heal eyes. And so that became kind of their a claim to fame. Another unique part of Laodicea, they had no fresh water supply. So they had to, by aqueduct, bring water from Herapolis. But they brought the water from Herapolis out of a hot spring. So by the time it got to six miles, six miles downstream, as it were, you can just imagine the water was lukewarm. So Jesus is using images in this letter that they would understand, both of this eye salve, white garments instead of black wool, the distasteful water. In fact, the water was so distasteful because there were so many minerals in it. We should take a look at this, one of the archaeological aqueducts that was dug up. And you'll see this is the kind of piping that was used for, from Herapolis to Laodicea. And some archaeological discoveries have found that it was so almost completely shut off because of the mineral deposits that had settled. And the water was distasteful. Some people even commented that the water, if you drank it, it would make you sick. So you wouldn't drink it. So you see these images 
the Laodicea is very, very close to home. They understand what Jesus is saying. They're, they're seeing this message kind of up close and personal. Now, when you think about this letter, I can't think of a better word to say. It's just a blistering rebuke from Jesus. A blistering rebuke. In fact, there's absolutely no commendation to this church given. There's nothing said of you've done a good job. There's no good news. I can tell you, a number of years ago, Marcy and I had been serving in a, in a congregation, and this is a lot of, it was another life ago, I guess you could say it's been so long. But we left that congregation, went to serve in another place, and I got a letter from the pastor I worked with. And that letter was scathing. There wasn't one kind thing said to me. There was no thank you, as I recall. There was nothing that would, nothing other than hurtful things said. And I want to tell you, that is a very humbling place to be. And it's a very hurtful place to be. When you feel like you've invested, you feel like you've done what you could do and under the conditions that you were given, and yet it is just a blistering rebuke, a blistering commentary on your life. That hurts. It caused me to reflect. It caused me to look inside and say, God, help me with this. I don't, wanna, I don't want this to be true. I don't want this to be really what's reflective of my life. Can you imagine what the pastor of this church did when he received this letter from John? And he reads it and it says, and I'll just change it for the sake of our conversation, to the pastor of the church at Laodicea. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And he's going to talk to them about being lukewarm and the remedy of that. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And the first thought of this is important for us to grasp. You see, Jesus here is described appropriately for this church. And that is really important to understand. If you, if you go to some kind of a special function where there is going to be a guest speaker, the host of the evening or the day is going to get up and say something like this, I want to introduce to you this person, and they're going to give a list of credentials that establishes that individual to be able to speak with some authority or some kind of connection to this particular event. That's a, now, Jesus needs no introduction whatsoever, but I want you to understand the power in which Jesus is describing himself to this church. The first is he is describing himself as the amen. The amen. This is a Hebrew, this is a Hebrew term of confirmation. Understand this. Jesus is saying the amen, the one who has the greatest authority, the greatest amount of assurance is the one who is speaking to you. This is a statement of confirmation. When you say amen at the end of a prayer, you are simply saying, taking a stamp and saying, so be it. It is done. The amen is the one who is communicating to this church. It suggests... It suggests the assurance of all of his promises. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus has said, he's, call, he's calling this church. He's saying, you're lukewarm. There are some things that are going on here. 
And he said, if I am about ready, now just bear with me here, I'm about ready to spit you out of my mouth. Now he is saying, that's essentially making a promise. This is what I'm going to do. So the amen is the one who is saying this. So what he's saying is, what I'm saying is going to happen. It's going to happen because I'm faithful to my promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 20. I love the way the, the Apostle Paul talks about the promises of God. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. You have to understand that God is going to be faithful to his promises. What Jesus says is going to happen. So he's revealing himself to this church as the amen. You can be sure that what I'm saying is going to come to pass. The second part, he says, I am the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true witness. If you have ever been in court and have had the experience of seeing an expert witness, now, whether it's for the prosecution or for the defense, it doesn't really matter. An expert witness is brought in to testify to a particular area of expertise. He can speak with authority. He can speak with authority, and it is a powerful testimony. Now, this is a little redundant when you read Amen and the Faithful and True Witness, but it is purposeful redundancy to let this church know that, this, that the promises that I'm making are going to come true. It's going to happen. And I am a faithful and true witness. You can depend on what I am saying. Understand this. Jesus is reliable and he is consistent. He is both true and he is what he says is true and he is he himself the truth. John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he's also described, self-described as the ruler. The ruler. The New International Version of, of the Scriptures translate this, this pass, or rather this verse, as the ruler of God's creation. Other translations will translate it the beginning of, the beginning of God's creation, which indicates, or what it says, is that God is, or Jesus, is the creative source in the whole universe. And he is the one who holds things together. So think about it for a moment. I am the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation has something to say to you. Stop for a moment. If you got a letter in the mail when you get home, and it says, the amen and the faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation has something to say to you, I want to tell you something. You would stand up and say, okay, i got to read this. There's something, something pretty strong coming my way. It's exactly what Jesus is saying to this church. He is establishing his credentials. He doesn't need to establish him, but he is letting them know in an appropriate manner that I have authority to speak into this, the life of this church and into your lives. He is the one who holds all things together. I love how Paul said it to the Colossians, and it's important because of this special relationship that the church of Laodicea shares with the church of the Colossians. Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God, or visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Or through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else 
and he holds all creation together. The Laodiceans in their current state of tepid needed a reminder. They needed a reminder that Jesus was the amen, faithful and true witness, and he is the source of everything. He sees all, he knows all, and he is the only one who is qualified to assess their condition. And for that matter, he is the only one qualified to assess our condition. What he promises will come to pass. What he says can be trusted. Who he is establishes authority to speak. Who he is confirms his power over all things. And understand, we, 1900 years past Laodicea, we are not excluded from his promises, from his words of truth and coming under his scrutiny and authority. Now, there are two things that come out of this. The first is a negative. Because... I'll just ask it in a question. What does, what does the amen and the faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation see when he looks into our lives? What does he see? What does he see when he looks into my life? Are we in need of correction? Do we need an adjustment? If so... He sees and he knows and he's calling us to account. The positive. The positive. The, the promises that God has made are for us. And God will be good on the promises he has made to you and to me. And I'm grateful for that. He will keep his word. He will keep his promises. He is faithful and he is true. He can be trusted. And I, and I want to just say this. Jesus holds not only this entire universe in his hands, but he holds you in his hands. He will hold you together. Have you ever heard the phrase, just keep it together, buddy? Just keep it together. I want you to know when you can't keep it together, God will keep you together. He'll keep us together. I'm grateful. The second thing that Jesus expresses to this church, he just says he's sickened by the lukewarm condition of the church. He's sickened. He says, you're lukewarm. What is, so, what is so striking to me is Jesus says, I would rather that you would be cold. I would rather that you would have non-existent faith than to be lukewarm. Think about that. How reprehensible being lukewarm is to Christ when he would say, I would, rather if you're, I would rather you be cold than to be lukewarm. And there's no way to get around the language here. In the King James, the word, the, the response of Jesus here is spew. Okay? That's the King James. There are others that it says spit, and that is a little better than spew. But then the worst of all is vomit. But that's what he's saying. If, if there's not change, that's what's going to happen. So what is it that brought them to a place of being lukewarm? There are three things. The first is they're complacent. To be complacent is to be pleased with oneself, especially with one's own merits, advantages, and situation. The prophet Amos 
He said, woe to you who are complacent. In Amos chapter 6 and verse 1, God spoke this to Amos. And then Matthew 24 and verse 12, sin will be rampant everywhere. And Jesus said, and the love of many will grow cold. Being complacent is an indifference. It's an apathy. It is self-satisfying. What I'm doing, I'm just okay where I'm at. Everything's good, no worries. All things are well. I'm just fine. When really there's something else going on at a deeper level. The second thing that Jesus draws attention to is that they're self-sufficient. We've already seen that, that they wanted to rebuild after the earthquake. We can take care of this. We don't need help from anywhere else. In fact, Jesus said it this way. You say, you say I am rich and I don't need a thing. I wonder if there's been times in my life, I won't say for anyone else, say for anyone else, I wonder if there have been times in my life where I've said, I really don't need anything. I really don't. Nothing could be further from the truth. I desperately need God in my life in every area of my life every day. But if I come to a place where I say, I don't, I don't need help, I'm good. No. No. Self-sufficiency is an ability to supply one's own needs without external assistance. Having extreme confidence in one's own resources. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 15, Jesus said, then Jesus said to them, be careful and guard against all kinds of greed. Life is not measured. Life is not measured by how much one owns. Third thing that Jesus calls them on, he says, first you're complacent, second you're self-sufficient, and third he says, you're delusional. You're delusional. To be delusional is having a false or unrealistic belief or an opinion. Delusional. There are two, I have lived in four states in my life. I've lived in Oregon, I've lived in California, Nevada, and Ohio. Four states. I don't mind those states, but there are two states I will never live in. The state of denial and the state of delusion. Not going to live there. That's where they are. You know, some delusions I want to I retain. Like the delusion that I weigh myself in the morning, and then I go to the doctor and he weighs me, and I'm always heavier at the doctor's office. I want to remain delusional about the weight at home. That's the one I want to retain. But listen to what Jesus says. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. God help us. God help us if we are believing one thing when the reality is something completely different. If we're living in a delusional state, I'm, I'm telling you, there's nothing good that will come from that. And Jesus said, this sickens him. I cannot even comprehend hearing a message. Well, I am hearing a message just like this today. I don't want to live this way. I cannot imagine what they must be thinking, but what are we thinking? How does this apply to us? Where, where do we come down on this, Gary? How do I deal with this? Because this is heavy. How do I deal with this? found a, a rather lengthy quote from Francis Chan. Francis Chan, great writer, speaker, former pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Simi Valley. I want you to listen to what Francis wrote. Lukewarm people don't, do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. 
They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full. And for the most part, they're in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Lukewarm people really don't want to be saved from their sin. They just want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. If we're not sobered by that and humbled, God help us. Don't misunderstand. This is not a call to just not be prepared for the future. But it is a call, and it's a wake-up call to where is our trust and our confidence truly placed. So I would just ask, are we lukewarm? Am I lukewarm? Are we lukewarm? Are you lukewarm? I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote about this passage. He said, they, speaking of Laodicea, they had allowed their devotion to Christ to shift into neutral. They no longer wrestled with evil or defended the faith. Instead, they tolerated everything, neither loving or hating anything. God help us. You say, well, okay, how might I how might I take inventory of my life? What, how do I figure this out? Put together five-step, I guess you could say, lukewarm checklist. It's not in your notes, so I want to go through the five of them, and I'm going to let them sit there, and you can take a picture with your smartphone if you're interested in keeping this with you. They're also available for you, I believe, in the notes on the back. But I want but I want you to look at these with me. The first is this. My life doesn't look much different than the non-believers I know. Let that sink in a moment. Make no mistake. My life, my life, your life, we are to be salt and light in the world in which we live. We are to be separate from the world and the culture in which we live. There should be a distinct difference between who we are as followers of Jesus Christ and those who do not know Him. My life doesn't look much different than the non-believers I know. Number two, my pursuit of God and godly things is inconsistent at best. I know I spend a lot of time on this. But are you are you in the word of God each day? Are you in prayer each day? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to challenge your life every day? 
My life cannot be inconsistent. My relationship, my building of my life of faith cannot be inconsistent. Third, my confidence, if I'm really honest, is found in everything more than God. I've told this story before, but it probably bears repeating. My grandmother was a, a real person of prayer. Didn't know her well. She died when I was very young. My mother told me a lot of stories about her, of her godliness. The pastor of her church came over one day and said, Lula, would you go to this home and pray because they're sick? She went with another lady and they went to pray. But here was the reason behind it. She said they're sick and they have no resources. And he said to her, he says, don't leave until God does something for this family. This was during the Depression. They didn't have anything. They had no resources. They had no medical insurance. They had no bottle of Advil. They had nothing to rely on but God. But God showed up. God did something in their life when they depended upon him. Where is our confidence? And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. Where is my confidence? My confidence, really, if I'm honest, is it in everything else but God? Fourth. My faith is important to me only when it's convenient. Tough question. And number five, my love for people is, in reality, conditional. I say I love folks, but do I? Is this comprehensive? I don't think so. There may be some things you could add to it. What you can see is how subtle compromise and apathy and inattention in matters of faith can create a climate, and I'm going to use this word a bunch, tepidity. You go, what? That sounds a little bit like another word I know. Well, I did that intentionally, and it is a real word, by the way. This type of lukewarmness makes Jesus sick. Think of the gravity of their situation. Jesus would prefer them to be cold in their faith, non-existent, than to be lukewarm. And so here, look at this. God have mercy on us if tepidity is the condition of our heart. If we are tepid and lukewarm in our faith, Jesus said, this makes me ill. Wow. Third thing that Jesus says to the church. He identifies himself appropriately. He says, this condition just sickens me. And the third thing is that he is very direct in his counsel to the church. He's very direct. He gives them a pathway. This is what you can pursue. The first part of this is a godly dependence. A godly dependence. He says, buy for me refined gold. Gold that's been refined in the fire. Put on the white clothes for instead of the black wool. Put I've got salve for your eyes. In other words, depend upon me. I have the true remedy to the lukewarm condition of your life, but you've got to depend upon me. And I would just ask of myself and all of us, are we depending upon God every day of our life? We need to be totally dependent upon God and Him alone. Spiritual apathy, Chuck Swindoll says, spiritual apathy cannot be solved by material prosperity. You cannot buy yourself out of a spiritually apathetic position. You cannot buy yourself out by doing all the right things, having all the right friends, all the right connections, being a part of all the right churches. 
It is only through what God does in, by His Holy Spirit that will bring the change needed. Psalm 145, the eyes of all who look to you in hope, you give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Understand who our true supply is. It is God and God alone. He is the one who is able to take care of us in all circumstance, at all time. He will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. We need to be dependent and solely dependent upon God and no one else. He is our resource. He's saying to this church at Laodicea, don't depend on the wealth of your uh, the wealth of this church. Don't depend upon the prosperity of the city. Don't depend upon your self-sufficiency, but put your trust in me. The second thing, he gives them a loving confrontation. And you know, I, I think this is just it's so significant because he says, he just uses the word rebuke. Can I tell you something? People come up to me and say, I just want to rebuke you today. Well, th- thank you, I think. I would say Thank you, not. That's not, there's no appeal to that whatsoever. I love the way Jesus says it. He says, because I discipline those I love. If Jesus didn't love you, he wouldn't tell you the truth. But he loves you so much, he will tell you the truth. But we must have ears to hear what he says to us. If we shut off our ears, we are simply saying, I am rejecting the love that you have for me. He loves this. And what is so significant to me, there are, there are, there's different, kind of differing opinions on the church at Laodicea. Some will be on the side to say these are not believers at all. And then there are some on the side that they are believers. And I, I am on this side of the argument. Why? Because there is a lampstand that is set in each one of these churches. And Jesus said, if you don't do what I'm asking of you, I will remove your lampstand. At this point in history, the lampstand has not been removed. These are true believers of Jesus, but they are lukewarm. And Jesus loves them enough to say, come back. Get back to a place of being on fire for God. Let something new happen in your life. Come back to a dependency upon me. And he's saying the same thing to us. He loves them. Hebrews 12 says, Our parents corrected us for a short time in our childhood as it, as it seemed good to them. But God corrects us throughout our lives for our own good. Don't miss this. You say, Pastor Gary, this is really a hard message to hear. It's been a hard message to prepare been a hard message to pray through. But God loves me so much. He loves us so much that He wants us in the right relationship for our good and for His honor. I want to hear what He has to say. Now all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure. I love that. 
seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time, yet later it will produce a transformation of character. Hear this. It will produce a transformation of character if we are willing to accept the love of God that He is extending and saying, check what's going on in your life. If there is lukewarm, it is time to turn this thing around because I love you. And there will be a transformation of your character. Something amazing is going to happen in you when you turn your life in the direction of the Lord of the church. It'll bring a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield to it. It's powerful. And lastly, oh no, two more, sorry, two more, one more, three more, five. A couple more hours, we're good. Number three, Jesus calls them to an earnest repentance. The word earnest is very interesting. It means to boil over with passion. Think about that for a moment. To boil over with passion. It's not just repentance. It's earnest repentance. Why is this significant? Because, hear this, tepidity, tepidity will not be overcome with lukewarm repentance. Get serious with God. It doesn't work. The answer to being lukewarm is not to be lukewarm. It's to get serious with God. The next is that Jesus offers them an open invitation. You're probably familiar with this image. It's a beautiful piece of artwork. Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's taken from Revelation 3.20. It's a beautiful picture. You'll notice if you look close at this, there's no door handle on the outside. The door has to be open from the inside. So Jesus isn't going to force his way through. It's a great picture of what he's asking. The other part of this that's really significant, for, for decades of time, this passage of Scripture has been used as an invitation to call people to faith. And while there's some validity to this, the context of this passage is far more specific. The context of this passage is speaking directly to the lukewarm church. To the lukewarm believer. Jesus is making an open invitation to those of us who are lukewarm. And hear this. Revelation 3.20, it's beautiful. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There is a restoration of fellowship. There is something going on that Jesus wants, but he's knocking at the door. Many of us, as I said, are familiar with this image, but here is what I want you to catch from it. The only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the, ex, of the excluded Christ. What we have done in becoming lukewarm, we have pushed Jesus to second status in our life. We have excluded him from the most important aspects and even the simplest of aspects of our life. But the only way to cure the lukewarm in us is to readmit him into our lives. He stands, he knocks, he calls, and he will dine with us if we will accept his open invitation into our lives. Jesus is relentless because he loves Loves us so much. Understand how much God loves you today. He wants relationship with you. He wants to be connected to you. And I'm not just talking to those who do not have faith. I am talking to the church that meets at this location. I want you to know Jesus is calling to us. 
He stands at your door. He calls. He knocks. He wants relationship because we've excluded him. You said you're just not as important as you once were. You're not a priority. Of all the six churches that we've considered so far and now today, each of them have a reward connected. And even to the Laodiceans, there's a reward if they're victorious. I love that word victory because it means they have triumphed over something. It's not just they just haven't moved from one place to another. No, they've triumphed over something. There's something that they have to get victory over. They have to conquer once and for all. And I, and I think for us in the U.S. and really the first world, we live in a very prosperous society. I'm grateful for all of that. I'm thankful that I have a home. I'm thankful for the, the things that God has given me. And that's the optimal part. Everything that Marcy and I have, God has provided It has not been through the work of my hands, the talents and the experiences that I possess, but it has been because of God's grace. And if I fail to recognize, if I become self-sufficient, if I become indifferent to the world around me, lukewarm, beginning to take on the characteristics of being lukewarm, One last thought this morning as we close. Jesus prefers a cold, non-existent faith in place of a lukewarm faith that sickens him. Jesus desires that we would have a faith that is vibrant, active, and red hot. And let it be said of us, yes and amen. Understand one more time, the amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation has spoken a word into our lives. Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit has said to the church? Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. In these moments, do a work that only you can do, Holy Spirit, in life. In Jesus' name. With your heads bowed, please, all your eyes closed. You'd say, Gary, lukewarm. Yeah. I think my faith has moved away from being passionate and hot. It's lukewarm. That would be the way it's described. And when I read this passage or when I see this passage of Scripture and I have it considered, I I don't want to do something that would make Jesus ill because of my relation. No. No. And I also recognize this morning how much God loves me or he wouldn't speak truth to me the way he does. And you would say right where you're sitting, Pastor Gary, pray for me. I, there's a lukewarm, I'm lukewarm. There's no other way to say it. That's me. That's me. If that's you, lift your hand around the room. There's a lukewarm attitude, spirit. There's something going on. I am not on, I'm just not there. Keep them up. Don't Don't put them down yet. Keep them up. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for my brothers, sisters, friends that responding not to Gary, but to you. Because, Lord, I lift my hand too. I've been challenged all week. God, 
I don't want to have any attributes of being lukewarm at all in my life. No, never, nothing, in Jesus' name. And I know that's the cry of all of our hearts today. We thank you for speaking into us this morning, your life. Lord, I pray that this, from this moment forward, there would be a brand new dependence upon you. Forgive us, Lord, forgive us for not putting our trust and our confidence in you. Lord, I pray for us that, that forgive us for not just pouring ourselves and nurturing our faith and growing our faith so that things have grown cold. Lord, I, I pray that you would forgive us for dismissing your words at times. We, we think it's for someone else when it's specifically for us. So God, I pray that you will just root from us the spirit of lukewarm. And Lord, that we would become active, vibrant, and on fire for God. Let it be so, I pray, in Jesus' name.